0: We're in the imprecatory Psalms and three weeks ago we were actually four weeks ago I think because we were at the concert three weeks ago and then um, we were in Psalm 69 and we are in part two of this Psalm. This Psalm is a Psalm of David. It is uh, imprecatory and uh, just if you're joining us for the first time or whatever imprecatory means in the literal sense to call a curse upon someone right, or something and in the biblical sense it is asking for God to judge the enemies of an individual or the enemies of a nation and there are several as we've gone through this study we've noticed many psalms that are considered or classified imprecatory psalms and I have said before that sometimes they um, these psalms are something I really as I look through them a lot of them I have not preached through or that sections of them I haven't preached through some of them I have and probably to my neglect, and I shouldn't have done that, because I have been greatly blessed in my own study of these as we've gone through them, because though they're some of the the harsh language that maybe not what a Christian is used to praying, it is still the language of the psalmist, and in so much of it, it reflects on the character of God, who is a God of mercy and grace, and a God who also will take vengeance upon those that, Um, do not turn to him and we find that over and over again we come to this psalm and we looked at the first section um, like i said three weeks ago and uh, it was this idea of deliverance and david says save me and we looked at those first 18 verses of the psalm and he's calling for that salvation from the situations he finds himself in now many believe that david wrote this first part of the psalm later it is attributed to Jeremiah having written like verses 29 and on the very last part, um, and or David writing up to verse 29, and then maybe Jeremiah, or maybe it was during Hezekiah's day. Um, and the Jews have you know various traditions that hold to that, and it is very much both would fit in the times of either David's life, if David wrote the whole psalm or not. But it is a David; it's a psalm attributed to David. But it's also, and we'll look at it tonight, a messianic psalm, meaning that it is prophetic of a greater than David, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And as we look at it tonight, we're just going to go verse by verse and cross-reference stuff, and you'll see that this psalm, and even in the imprecatory part of it, really is about Christ and points to Christ. And I thought of that because before we even jump into the text tonight, you remember this is the... The hymn book for the Jews. All right. And really, it was the hymn book for many Christians up until just the last couple hundred years. I remember coming across a a, a hymn book by Isaac Watts, who it was all the Psalms put to meter. And it was a great big thick thing with a uh, leather and wooden binder. Uh, on it and it wasn't too big and it was this old parchment it was from like the late 1700s and I came across that in a used bookstore back in Bangor in the early 90s and I bought the thing for like five dollars and I thought wow this is great unfortunately I didn't know how to sing the psalms to meter I have no idea and they were just the psalms put out like that and that would have been a hymn book in Isaac Watt's time that was used and it was really backs us straight up to this and so it's important because when the prophecies of Christ were being fulfilled so often, the quotes that Christ did or quoted in his messages and others came right out of the songbook, the Psalms. And they were the fulfillment of the Word of God. And I think of that because often we connect things by music, don't we? We think in songs sometimes, or you'll hear something and it reminds you of a lyric in a song or it reminds you of something you know. And that was the case for the Jews also and they didn't even though they knew the word of god many of them had rejected their own messiah at the time of christ and we're going to look at that a little bit but nevertheless god in his mercy and grace fulfilled his word in the presence of them in their ears and they would have been recognizing some of the things that jesus said coming from many of the psalms anyways uh and by the way this is attributed in the new testament as a psalm of david or at least this section is so we pick that up we're going to read verses 19 down to 29 you know my reproach my shame and my dishonor my adversaries are all before you reproach has broken my heart and i am full of heaviness i looked for someone to take pity but there was none and for comforters but i found none they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and their well being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrath, a wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. Let's pray. Lord, again, we open up your word tonight, thanking you for it. And Lord, we thank you for this text that we're looking at in this song that would have been sung over and over again so many years ago. And even tonight as we open it up, I, I just uh, would love to know how this was sung by the Jews. And yet, Lord, it, it is the words that drive home uh, what this psalm is all about and, and, and who it's about. And so we thank you for it. We pray you teach us tonight as only you can help us to learn these things And be obedient to your word and to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. David opens up this section by saying, You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. And that is a common theme with david's writings: several times in david's life he found himself with adversaries all around him and we've looked at those psalms as we've gone through them and some were attributed to the time when like absalom was rebelling other times when saul was after him and the religion the people of his own country were out to get him and david in his sometimes solitary he had to sometimes went you know alone into things and other times David had his mighty men with him and a few hundred men that were gathered with him and, and they would hide in various places. And so he had those times. And this definitely could be the heart cry of David as it is. But it also reminds us back to another psalm of David, which is another Messianic psalm. And it's found in Psalm 22. And it is really a psalm about Christ. It was indeed Christ who was reproached of men, wasn't it? And The Bible clearly tells us that. And he was also put to shame, wasn't he, at the crucifixion and and even before his crucifixion? And talks about dishonor and that my adversaries are all before you, O Lord. And ultimately, our sin and the evil that man does is always before the Lord. And so remember that. Not only because um, it's just, again, God doesn't, he takes note of everything is not one thing that gets by him on those things and sometimes we get really concerned about justice in this world which will not come for various reasons it just doesn't happen sometimes sometimes somebody commits a crime and nobody knows who did it here god knows or uh some act takes place and then uh, you know a person isn't com- you know he, they, they're guilty but they aren't found guilty in man's courts those kind of things and David had those kind of injustices done to him all the time, over and over again. And so there was a reproach about him. Psalm 22 talks about that, and David writes here, But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. And you notice it's capital M there, in the, at least in, this, in the New King James. And it's referring to Christ. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, and then it says, you know, it's a quote, if I want to go down through that psalm, you'll find that it is a psalm that is about the crucifixion, through and through, the whole thing. Actually, this psalm starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was one of the last words that Jesus said? That is what he said. Right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting directly from Psalm 22. And he was telling those present, and particularly the Jews, because the, the Romans didn't know the Psalms, but the Jews that were present there, watching that execution, they would have heard those words and said, wow, that's found in the Psalm of David, in what we know as Psalm 22. And they would have remembered that this was, or many would have known this is being fulfilled before their very eyes. Because it is, Psalm sixty nine is very similar in its uh, fulfillment of those things. We we read of that. He says, "You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor." In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the writer here says, "Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight." and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then this is the reason, right? Looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. I think it's in the book that we're studying um, in uh, Wednesday night prayer, our prayer time our Bible study on Wednesday night we're going through the book we're down to the last chapter now uh the church in Babylon by Erwin Lutzer and it it just talks about the the, we're very similar in analogy to what Israel was going through when they were removed and put into a culture that was totally foreign to God right a very pagan culture And, and we're there and and they were they were brought there by God to Babylon right and in that book anyways I'm getting off track In that book, he makes a statement that says, Christianity is the only religion that has a savior that was humiliated, or a leader that was humiliated. And I thought about that, and you know, that's true. If you look at all the other world religions out there, uh, many billions of people following other teachings other than Christ... And they follow people that in some way, shape, or form have been elevated, either like a Hindu would say they were elevated to deity, right? Um, And the ancient Egyptians said that, the Greeks said that, the Romans said that. Um, Or you take like Islam and it's Muhammad and all the great works of Muhammad and all that. But it's only in Christianity where we see that the God who created everything was put to shame and I think of that because the cross the cross is the great emblem of that isn't it the, the cross is emblematic of the shame of Christ it was so shameful that that for Jews to be executed on a cross um, was the worst of, of ways to die I mean the Old Testament says cursed is every man that hangs on a tree right and That's exactly what it was. And the cross was a constant reminder of the shame associated with the price of sin. And it's interesting that the cross has become the emblem, really, uh, of Christianity. And that's not bad, you know, it's not bad at all. But it's this that it should hopefully draw people to the reality that that the cross is something that uh, Jesus had to endure. Thankfully, I don't have to go to a cross to pay for my sins. I couldn't do it. Somebody has already paid for my sin and done that. The reproach of the cross. In verse 20, David goes on to say, reproach has broken my heart. Broken my heart. When Jesus hung on the cross, as you may have heard, he died. Certainly physical death. The injuries that were inflicted upon him would have caused his death. But he also died of a broken heart. Didn't he? When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, here's the, the son who has always been God, always had the union and been it, totally, 100% of the time, always been connected perfectly with the, the, the Father and the Spirit of God, the triune Godhead. And now he takes upon him the sin of the world, all the evil things, all the awful things, all the, you know... Suffering and everything else that goes upon him. And really, God at that very moment had to look away from sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the Son bore our sin alone. Reproach has broken my heart. And I am full of heaviness. Uh, And it it says basically that I'm sick, (laughs) I'm full of sickness. No doubt David experienced that at times when he looked out at his own nation, his own people, and his enemies as well. uh, Those that wanted his his own people dead. And it made him sick to his stomach. I'm sort of there with David sometimes, you know, when I look at the world around us. And I think of what people call good, evil, and evil good. And it makes me sick to my stomach. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Again, when Jesus hung on the cross, he was alone. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And that's what took place. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 63, 5. I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wandered, but and I wondered but there were was no one to uphold therefore my own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury it sustained me that's messianic that's that's prophetic 700 years before the crucifixion as saying who brought salvation Jesus brought salvation we know his name Isaiah didn't know his name he knew him as the Messiah he knew him as the anointed one the Lord Therefore, my own arm brought salvation. That word salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua, the same name as Jesus. (laughs) His Hebrew name was Yeshua. Matthew chapter 27, verse 42. These are those gathered around Jesus at the cross. He saved others himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. They said, come down off that cross. But he couldn't come down off that cross. He was nailed to the cross. And he wasn't going to come down off that cross until it was finished. It was accomplished. Until salvation was purchased. And there was no one there to help him. And by the way, I don't blame those people. You know why? Because I would have done the same thing. And my sin put him there just as much as their sin put him there. And the sin of the whole world. Often that is the case, though, with God's people. David says, I had no comforters. Nobody there was found for me. And Jesus had that the same way. And by the way, others did, like the apostles. Paul, his last letter, his swan song, often is what Second Timothy is called. In the end of that book, that letter, Paul writes this. At my first defense, no one stood with me. Here's the Apostle Paul. He is the one who has gone out into some of the hardest places uh, that is imaginable and and suffered greatly in the consequences of those things as he brought the gospel to the Gentiles, as he went and brought the gospel to Europe. Oh, God, thank you for doing that. Because we are here tonight, most likely, most of us here of European descent, that the gospel came to our people. From people like Paul and others. But you know what? When he was standing trial in Rome, no one stood with him. But all forsook me, may it not be charged against them. But I love this. But, right? There it is, the conjunction that transitions, right? But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. You may stand alone, but truly the only one who's ever stood alone at death, is Jesus. So that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. Paul is saying, I'm on my way out, and you know what? He's preserved me from the lion. That's our great enemy. And that indeed may have been a direct reference to Nero as well. Or the Romans that had him. But nevertheless, the greatest enemy is Satan. The lion. He's out there seeking whom he may devour as Peter puts it. But look what he says. The Lord will preserve him for his heavenly kingdom. Are you glad the Lord preserves you if you're one of his? And he ends with saying, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That that statement and that culmination of what he says is amen. You know, I love that. Verse 21 of Psalm 69. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now it's interesting because we don't have, we don't have any account of David ever drinking or eating uh, anything like this. Again, it points to a greater. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-four. Jesus on the cross. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel of, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. It was vinegar. And they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. That was fulfillment of Psalm 69. It was also fulfillment of Psalm 22. David goes on to pray this. Let their table be a snare before them, and their well being a trap. Or their well-being, a trap, excuse me. And um, then he goes on to say, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. This is that imprecatory part. And he's saying these are the enemies of God, the enemies of him, and ultimately the enemies of Christ. And he calls out of in prayer their demise. Right? Let their table become a snare before them. That says that their prosperity will actually be their undoing by the way that is exactly what took place in Israel generations from David when they were taken captive into Babylon in the midst of prosperity when they thought everything was going well really it wasn't going so well spiritually their well-being became a trap let their eyes be darkened so they may not see and make their loins uh not uh uh, yeah and and let make their loins shake continuously and really what that last part of that's an idiom uh in the new testament it's quoted um actually i'll look at that one because in romans chapter 11 paul quotes from this psalm and david says let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a recompense to them and again he's quoting from the psalm but it's not a it doesn't sound like a quote verbatim and you say well is the bible was it different then no the holy spirit has every right to add commentary to any scripture And he's also translating from hebrew to greek and as a hebrew person he would know the specific meaning of what psalm 69 said so that's how it comes out a lot stronger isn't it the best interpretation of the bible is the bible itself And so you do that. And then it goes on to say this, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. And I thought, well, how did going from Hebrew to Greek get it so wrong, right? It's not wrong. You know, it says, let their loins shake in Psalm 69 continually. And here it says, and bow down their back always. The Hebrew phrase that is used means place a heavy burden on them. And when you ever, I know I've done this before, carrying something very, very heavy. I mean, really heavy for any length of time, any distance or whatever. um, Your legs begin to shake, don't they? Your loins, that's the strength of your legs. They begin to shake. And what happens to your back? Oh, oh, it gets heavier and heavier. And the psalmist, David, says that's what's going to happen to these people let this happen to them may they feel the weight of their sin and their evil deeds wow that's harsh but it's in the bible isaiah chapter 6 echoes that same sentiment their spiritual condition isaiah 6 9 says and he said go and tell this people keep on hearing but do not understand keep on seeing but do not perceive Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. That sounds so contrary to the way we're taught to pray, right? To pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, right? To do good to them uh, that do the same, right? To go the extra mile when someone compels you to do that. Uh, All those different things. And yet in this case Isaiah says and again prophesying from God the word of God comes to him and says this is what's going to be accomplished in your ministry you're going to go and preach the word to these people but it's just going to make their eyes their spiritual eyes more blind and their ears more dull and they're not going to understand why? not because God was doing that to them but God was giving them over to what the New Testament says, a reprobate mind. See, if you remain in your sin, and this we're, we're looking at people that are not Christians or not believers in the Old Testament. Uh, there were believing Jews, there were unbelieving Jews, and others, Gentiles as well. And if you take the knowledge of God as it comes to you and you say, I don't want that, and you push that aside. Listen, there comes a time when God gives up. And I know that from the book of Romans, right? Romans uh, chapter 1 says God gave them over to a reprobate or debased mind. And that's the devolution of man. Not evolution, but he's devolving. Because the further you go from the knowledge of God and you suppress those things in unrighteousness, Romans 1 says God gives over. And and I'm thankful. I, I don't know when that occurs. Because there's been some people I know that are tremendous, that sin has almost wrecked their life and yet they come to faith in Christ and they find forgiveness and restoration. But then I also know some that mock God and, and ha- I've, I've seen them mock God and mock God and it's almost in many ways impossible for them to understand. It's because they've hardened their own heart. God allows it. Anyways, Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. <laughs> boy, that's prayer. Uh, and as I've said, I I think it's not wrong to pray those kind of things when you see an injustice in the world, like a you know somebody like an Osama bin Laden. Um, and as far as I know, he's gone now. But is it wrong to say, Lord? I, I mean, it would be great if that man got saved. When he he doesn't have a chance now. The army, the uh, the Navy SEALs took care of that but but Lord if he won't pour out your vengeance upon him and to name that because he's just going to commit more evil I don't think that's wrong to pray that at all Uh, however coming to the New Testament again we are told to forgive others right we're told to pray for them to pray for all men everywhere Paul says all men is all men all people so we need to pray but he doesn't say how to pray always right and i think the imprecatory nature of prayer is part of that and thankfully god makes intercession for us in groanings that can't be uttered how many believers through the centuries have cried out to god and have cried out not even knowing how to pray to him and yet he hears and he makes intercession for him and i'm thankful for that because sometimes i'll get it wrong i might pray something like this and it isn't what god wants but he's going to make it right. Jeremiah 10 verse 25. This is what the Lord says there. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you. And on the families who do not call on your name. For they have eaten up Jacob and devoured him and consumed him. And made his dwelling place desolate. And here's Jeremiah as, he, as he's praying that. right, Begging for God. To take vengeance on the enemies that were surrounding Jerusalem and had done terrible things. First Thessalonians chapter 2, New Testament. For you, brethren, became imitators of the Church of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. Remember Thessalonica, the letter whom you know that the, the Christians who are living in that city, and this is the letter written to them. Um when in act 17 when paul goes there it was a rough go very rough uh they a riot formed and they assaulted the house where paul was staying the house of jason and he had to be led out of the city in haste uh to get he escaped barely with his life and then he goes on to the next city berea and they were more noble than those in thessalonica and that they received the word of god with all readiness of mind right And there was that idea of when Paul went, there were things that sometimes didn't go well. Yet he was right in the will of God. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. There were many Jews that were saved, right? In those early days, the church was a Jewish church, that way. And they suffered greatly, those Christians. Because they were exiled from their own country in many cases. Scattered, persecuted. Paul was one of them. He persecuted him as Saul of Tarsus. right? For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. What a testimony. Imagine being known for that. Killed Jesus and you killed your own prophets. Wow. Now mind you, don't take that verse totally out of context and say that's the group of people that's to blame that that's anti-semitism and that that there have been people over the years that have done that in particular the theology that comes out of what we call replacement theology um and, and i'll like the biggest proponent of that roman catholicism it teaches that israel by rejection of the messiah was replaced with the church that's not the case um he paul said to the jew first and also to the greek right and he was to proclaim the word of god to all people including now you know and and on israel has not been replaced but there was an element of believing israel they were added to the church and an element of believing gentiles they were also added to the church a new entity but replacement theology which is often taught led sadly to anti-semitism because people said well we must persecute Israel and the Jew because they rejected Christ. Well, guess what? So did the Gentiles reject Christ. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. Right? The sons of God. That's, by the way, a verse that John says to the Jew. (laughs) Praise God for the believing, those who received. And Gentiles are included in that verse too. But look, going on here he says, And have persecuted us. Paul lumps that himself in that group. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. Isn't that something? There are people that would rather have you not preach the gospel to someone and have somebody saved. They really heap judgment upon themselves when they do that. Look what it says, that they may be saved so that as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Paul's writing this just prior to 70 AD. 70 AD is a big date in, in history, particularly with the Jewish history. Uh, the reason why Orthodox Jews men wear black For example, you go to places like New York where you see Orthodox Jews. They have long beards usually and they wear black. And you'll see them at the Wailing Wall wearing black. The reason they wear black is because of 70 AD. It is when um, Titus, the Roman general, came in and ransacked Jerusalem and laid it waste. Jesus prophesied years before that that not one stone would be left upon another. And they were heaping up judgment upon themselves. I believe Jesus warned them clearly. That's his grace and mercy to do that. The apostles warned them. Others warned them. And many came to faith in Christ in those days. Praise the Lord for that. But judgment came in 70 AD and laid waste Jerusalem. And in particular, the temple of the Jews was destroyed and it has not been rebuilt. The last remnant that they have access to today is the Western Wailing Wall. Psalm 69, 25. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. And this is the prophecy Jesus talked about. And when he comes down into Jerusalem and he weeps over a city, he says, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I would have gathered you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And I've said this before. It's one of the greatest verses that shows human responsibility and divine sovereignty coming together. Christ's will was that they would be saved, but they would not. That says that man has a will. And he can obey the gospel or he can be disobedient to the gospel. Don't be disobedient. He goes on to say, See, your house is left to you desolate. It hadn't been left desolate yet. In 70 A.D. it would, 40 years later. And assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow. Psalm 69, 26. For they persecute the ones you have struck, and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. You notice the the word ones is in italics. It's not there in the original, but it's added for clarity. Some translations translate it as they persecute him who you struck. Um, Ones, it is included in that. And I think it's really an element of persecution will come to those who follow the Lord. And that's the teaching of the New Testament as well, isn't it? For they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded John 15 verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me they will also persecute you. If they kept my word they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Because they do not know him who sent me. Wow. Jesus warned his followers, you're going to be persecuted. And that's exactly what would take place. Verse 27, Psalm 69, And add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. Boy, that's a... uh, Almost, that hurts, right? I mean, you're saying, let their sin be heaped upon them. David praised this. And can I just say this in a practical sense? That's exactly what man does when he rejects the Lord. He has no other option. It's it. He's done. Judgment comes and they actually heap judgment upon themselves in doing that. And I quoted Romans one twenty eight. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased or reprobate mind to do those things which are not fitting. You often wonder why um, the world is as it is and doing some terrible, awful things. Well... Simply because uh, they have been given over, many people have been given over to a reprobate mind, and yet God, the Lord, can break through that mind. He did with me, did with you, many of you, I hope. Isaiah says this as well, and it's interesting in Isaiah twenty-six ten. Let grace be shown to the wicked, and we might say amen to that. But look what he goes on to say. Yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Sounds like America today. Wow. And although America is not Israel, and this was given to Israel, America has been a blessed nation because of uprightness and people that know the Lord. And as we get further away from that, we welcome God's judgment on our land. psalm 69 28 let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous And by the way that's theologically correct (laughs) of course it is it's the bible the bible seems to teach that there's two books well there's actually excuse me one book there's there's different competing theories on that because the bible talks about the lamb's book of life and it also talks about the book of the living and it makes sense in the way the bible reveals it that god has Knowledge, a book, whatever form it's in, it says book, so I'm going to say book, a scroll, however, of everyone that's ever lived. He knows every single person that's ever lived. He's God. He's infinite. And he knows all things. He can know that. I don't, but he does. And yet, the only ones, and only ones that have names that will go into eternity are the ones that are written in the Lamb's book of life and it seems as you go through scripture in the new testament there will be a time according to the book of revelation that sinners names will be blotted out of the lamb's book and or the book of the living and then in heaven they'll be remembered no more their name will never be brought up again however that works and i'm not the judge of all the earth and good thing i'm not the bookkeeper right god's the bookkeeper he'll get it right Philippians 4, 3, Paul writes here, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. God has the names of those he knows that are his, and their names are in his book. Yet, as I said, Revelation 13, verse 8, it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. These are people who are at the time, this is future, who are, the term earth dweller is they're worshiping anything but God, all right? Whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb, right? Slain from the foundation of the world. Their names are not in that book. And their name's not there because they haven't trusted Christ as their Savior. It's that simple. I'm just saying this is what the Bible reveals you go on later and the book was opened and the names, were people were judged out of those books later on, right? Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment. And yet, that's, uh, that's how this psalm uh, shows us again. So when David prays that and he says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living, I think that's what he's referring to. See, not everybody will get saved. It would be great if they did. Um, But it's not the case. Jesus said, why is the road to hell? Destruction, right? The path of destruction. And many there be that are on it. Many. And some of them will cause great grief to those who are on the narrow path, which is the path of righteousness. Jesus compares the two. And he says, few there be that find it. And you know what? In this case, David says, all those evil acts and those that are surrounding me and those that hate God, Let them be blotted out. And I'm glad because in heaven, for the believer, your eternal state in glory, you'll never remember the names of evil people. Probably why we're given a new name, right? Because sometimes our names are also associated with bad things. Even Christians. Well, I better end this because we're out of time. The last verse of this section says, but I am poor and sorrowful. And I love this. Let your salvation, right? Yeshua, O oh God, set me up on high. David can't remain too much in this, the, the, the hard stuff. He just says, I'm going back to you and Lord set me up on high, right? We sang, I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day, Right? And we're going up. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray even tonight, O oh Lord, that we would warn those around us. We'd live in such a way as to bring honor and glory to you. And that, Lord, if people speak evil of us, it would be falsely. Thank you for David. Thank you for the hope that he reveals in this passage here and the hope that's found in Christ And as he said, O God, set us up on high. We pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.